Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi. Thanks so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about what I consider to be the bluegrass event of the decade, What the Night Brings, the Jeff Austin tribute that recently went down in Denver. And its significance in understanding the progression of bluegrass and acoustic music, and also understanding just what that scene is really all about today, as well as the implications of the fact that that event took place out here in Denver, Colorado. After that, I'll share a few words with up-and-coming Jamgrass band, my good friends The Kitchen Dwellers, and then we'll get on to a full-length interview with modern acoustic guitar virtuoso John Stickley. So, tons to get to today, but before we get rolling, I just want to remind you guys that Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. And if you guys dig what you're hearing here, you should definitely check out Osiris, the network of music and culture podcasts with all kinds of great content, great shows, great hosts, And their latest release is called After Midnight. It's a retrospective on Fish's Big Cypress Festival at the turn of the century. I just checked out episode one, and what an incredible story. The band played from 11 p.m. until sunrise. And let me tell you, the last time I played an eight-hour gig, 
Oh, right. I never have, and I probably never will, because that is insane. Just an incredible thing to do for their fans, an incredible feat of stamina, and, of course, an incredible story. It's hosted by Jesse Jarnow. The first two episodes are up, and there's great interviews with Trey and Fishman as well. But I especially love hearing the interview with John Paluska, their manager. And he talks about how they created the whole ethos and community around fish and how they sort of fostered and preserved it over the years, which is sort of what they're known for, and then how the Big Cypress Festival came to be. It's truly an astounding story. So check it out. It's a great listen after midnight. All right, in the last episode of the podcast, not sure if you guys checked it out, but I went over a history of bluegrass music from its traditional roots in the 1940s through many different phases of evolution leading into the 1990s when you started to see the advent of the jamgrass scene with bands like Salmon, Cheese, and the Yonder Mountain String Band, and then everything that's happened over the last 20 years as that scene has just completely blown up. And this past summer, we lost a real icon of that music world, a hugely influential musician who we were lucky to collaborate with many times. He touched many lives and was an absolute integral part and I would say sort of founding architect of the modern acoustic scene that's thriving today and that's Jeff Austin of the Yonder Mountain String Band and what the night brings was a tribute to Jeff and a fundraiser for his family and I would say it was the most profound night of music that I think I've really ever been a part of. It was so incredible to behold Roughly 7,000 fans who traveled from all over the place to be a part of one night of music, and I really felt like I had to give this momentous occasion some coverage here on the podcast. To me, this was the seminal bluegrass event of the modern era for two reasons. First reason is the unreal lineup of bands across section of the jamgrass world featuring really all the prominent players who are out there playing modern variations of bluegrass and presenting it in the style that we first observed in bands like the Yonder Mountain String Band. And the second reason, maybe even more significant, is the way that this event had on full display the community that's evolved around this music since so many more bands and fans have come in the door to be a part of it. Now, as far as the bands go, this was really unlike anything I've ever seen in a one-day event, you know, excluding festival lineups. As far as what bands were represented, you had String Cheese, Salmon, the infamous String Dusters, Sambush, Green Sky, Railroad, Yonder, Keller, the Traveling McCurries, Hot Rise, Billy Strings. I mean, the list goes on and on. And if you're ever wondering what modern bluegrass has evolved into from songwriting styles to modern interpretations of playing the instruments to effects pedals, modern sound, lights, production, all of that stuff was on display in a really definitive way at What the Night Brings. So that's kind of the musical component. But again, this event was so much more than a lineup of bands and what they represent as far as a progression of a musical style. To me, What the Night Brings really symbolized the community that bluegrass music has become. It was about all those bands that make up that scene, supporting each other, collaborating with each other endlessly, and also about the fans and how they support the artists that they follow, and also about how they love and support each other. 
And as I was taking this whole event in and just observing what it meant to the musicians and the energy that this incredible room of fans was putting forth, I was just so blown away by that community factor and what we're capable of as one big extended family of bands and fans together. And there it was on full display, this thing that Yonder and Jeff created circling back around to pick him up, celebrate his life, support his family, and truly something. I think if you were in that room that night, this was an evening of music that you will never forget. The Jamgrass scene and everything that it's become, I think, was more fully on display at that moment in time than anything that I've previously observed. And I don't necessarily know what it's like in other genres of music, but surely this community factor is something that makes bluegrass unique. And here we are on this definitive night for the music, and that's what it's really all about. We're there to support our brother Jeff and to support each other and celebrate his life. And I want to take a second to send my love to Jeff and to all of his family and friends and to his many musical comrades. And I'll say it again, we're so grateful to have collaborated with Jeff so much over the years, to have spent so much time with him, and just to have learned from him his stagecraft and everything that yonder, those guys just, they forged the way for everything that came after them. I really can't stress that point enough. Initially, what the night brings was supposed to be at the Mission Ballroom, but it sold out so quickly that they moved it to a small arena in Denver, the First Bank Center, and even that sold out in a matter of minutes, which is completely astounding, 7,000 fans. I mean, nothing like this was going on 20 years ago. The scene backstage was surreal. It was like everyone you've ever met in the bluegrass world. So much great camaraderie. I got to hear so many great bands make so much great music that night. We visited with all of our people backstage, and that camaraderie was, oh man, I've never really experienced anything like that. Jamming, reminiscing, remembering Jeff in all the best possible ways. What a fitting send-off. It was a little crazy for us getting out there. We had a show the night before in Connecticut, took the bus overnight to Baltimore, jumped on a 10 a.m. flight to Denver, get to Denver at noon, straight to First Bank. The crew had all the gear, so they had us uh, set up ahead of time, showed up, sound check at four, doors at six. Each band played one or two songs. The Dusters did Rise Sun and the Jeff Classic Cuckoo's Nest. And Andy Hall, Jeremy, and I all sat in with the String Cheese guys. That was great. Yonder Mountain String Band was there that night. They played beautifully. I think they played three Jeff songs. I know they played Half Moon Rising. And I was out of front of house listening, and I just had tears in my eyes looking up at the stage and then looking out at the crowd and just seeing what the bluegrass community has evolved into. It's incredible to behold. People, they care about the music and they care about each other and it's really a beautiful thing to see and we're so grateful to be a part of it so we're going to get the dwellers take on yonder here in just a second because they're a band that likely wouldn't exist if it wasn't for yonder but there's one thing that i wanted to touch on really quick not sure if you guys checked out episode three but the intro really covers a history of bluegrass from the origins of the music to the jamgrass movement of today and there's one thing that i think i kind of left out in that whole discussion of the evolution of bluegrass. And that's the geographical element of that whole progression. 
and the significance of what the night brings being here in Denver. Of course, bluegrass got rolling in the southeast, and there's still tons of action in Nashville, lots of progressive pickers in addition to the more traditional scene that I would say is anchored in the southeast. And there's great scenes in New York, Boston, uh, North Carolina. But as the music evolved and bands like Sam and Cheese and Yonder came onto the scene in the 90s, those were all Colorado bands. And the music, as it kind of opened up and evolved, it also migrated west. And then you had everything that was going on in California as well, Olden in the Way, Grisman in the Bay Area playing with Mike Marshall, Daryl Anger, Tony Rice. And of course, you got to give a quick shout out to Hot Rise, one of the original Colorado bluegrass bands. They started out in the 80s and are still going strong today. They play a more traditional strain of the music, but you know that, that opened a lot of doors uh, for what was to come later. And bluegrass these days, especially the more modern edge of the music, I would say has a strong home base here in Denver. And I also call Denver home, and it's a great place to be. There's tons of musicians, tons of fans, tons of venues, so many great events going on, and it's a really exciting spot to be if you are a bluegrass musician. All right, now for some great perspective on everything that I just got into about Jeff and Yonder, I'm going to roll this short interview that I did with the Kitchen Dwellers, who were recently on tour with us, opening a run of shows over about two weeks. They killed it. Crowds were loving their energy, loving their sound. And these guys invited me into the studio to produce their new record, Mirror Made, which just came out, so make sure to check that out. I love this band for a lot of reasons. They're a true band. They play in a really synergistic style that's more than the sum of the parts, and I always love hearing that. What I also love is the way that these guys approach both the singing and the way that they play their instruments. They're not necessarily from a bluegrass pedigree, though I feel like they've picked up a lot of that vocabulary along the way. But what they do have and kind of what they've always had in their sound and something that's very foundational to bluegrass is just a really solid approach to the playing and the singing. And it's evocative. It rocks a crowd. It really sounds great. And I think that we really captured that on this new record, Muir Made. Just listen to what these guys have to say about the influence of Yonder and Jeff, because they're probably one of many bands that have a very similar story, and inspiration probably doesn't get any more direct than this. So here we go, The Kitchen Dwellers. Okay, what's up, guys? We're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and I'm hanging out here with my buds, The Kitchen Dwellers. What's up, guys? Just hanging out, yep, hanging yep. out in the bus. Well, sure glad that we're getting some time with these guys on tour. We're in North Carolina right now, just wrapping up about a two-week run. And uh, I was in the studio with these guys producing their record, Muir Made, that has just come out. So make sure you give that a listen. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But I really wanted to mostly get your guys' perspective on the influence of Yonder Mountain String Band, and even more specifically, Jeff Austin. We just had really one of the most incredible nights of music that I've ever been a part of, What the Night Brings, out in Denver, just seeing all the bands in our world come together for an incredible cause to support Jeff and his family, and it was just an incredible thing. I know, Torin, that that you were there, but I know you guys have an interesting perspective. The Dwellers are... Uh, you know, a modern day part of the the jamgrass world. 
doing some really unique things, making great music, really connecting musically with fans. And you know, you guys to me are a great example of a post yonder type string band. And you yes, know, in some definitely. way, in some way, we are too. In, in in so far as you know, they really forged the the model, a lot of the things musically and from a business perspective that we're sort of following in our careers. But I wanted to get your guys' perspective because I know that they've had a huge influence on on both of you guys. I'm here with, with Torin and Sean. And just curious to know how how did Yonder come into your life? How did it how did it look as a fan? You know, you were going to shows, following them around and then and then, you know, did that ultimately end up being the thing that inspired you to play and start a band how how was you know how was your connection with right. yonder how did that whole thing unfold um i actually remember like the exact day that i discovered <laughs> yonder and uh i was in high school and me and my buddy uh me and my buddy kw walked into this uh head shop record shop in billings called ernie november's i'm pretty sure it's still there yeah. and uh and uh, we walked in and like we were looking at all this stuff and like and and uh boatman was playing on the speakers um the guy running the shop was playing boat on the speakers and we were like what the hell is this like we had no idea you know like no frame of reference what sort of music this was like we were just getting into psychedelic rock and like so there wasn't any string band music on your radar at not really like okay. my grandpa listened to bluegrass a lot he listened to really like cl- you know the the classical the standards um a lot but i hadn't really ever connected with that um as a kid and uh and I remember like the exact moment and the guy showed us it was it's the it's the boatman off of the the mountain tracks volume five that that's what he was listening to that day, and uh, I'm pretty sure he sold us a couple of yonder CDs like right on the spot. We were no way, love that. We were definitely yeah. We were gonna check it out and and we were in we were both in a band at the time like and I was playing drums and stuff and uh, you know and uh, hadn't ever really picked up a string instrument up until that point, but then sort of like went about teaching myself guitar and mandolin and banjo kind of all at the same time intermittently sort of as a result of getting more into bluegrass music which all kind of stemmed from that one day and how long was it until you started seeing the band live um well growing up in rural montana the the music events that you know came through were few and far between and like I remember we just used to look at like a lot of these shows that people would go see or bands that people would go see as like these crazy unfathomable places that you're like, how do people get to go to that? It like blew my mind when I met someone that had like seen travel live, to or, yeah, yeah, or like yeah. been to Red Rocks sure. or been to the Gorge. That blew my mind as like being a like a country kid in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Right. So yeah, so it was it wasn't it wasn't until we went to college and. The first, yeah, my first Yonder shows uh, was this. There was like this legendary run in 2011 uh, through Montana um, when Yonder used to come through and play Montana like four night runs or something like that at the Wilman. It was like the craziest, gnarliest fall me down to the riverside. Like in it, anyone's ever, I've heard Pastor Tim talk about it too. That it was just like the craziest show, and like so just legendary in insofar as it was. Epic chart topping performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two nights of just like ridiculous, crazy psychedelic bluegrass. Were you there, Swain? Swain was there with me. Yeah, that was was my first Yonder shows. Yeah, okay. But Swain's from Swain's from Telluride, so he has a he has a different 
yonder story well, together. That's awesome. I, I mean, I can't think of a more direct influence than, you know, you heard the tunes, you're captivated, you're influenced. What is this music? You get into the band, you start you start playing. You know, that's that's yeah. as influential as it gets. So what, what about you, Swain? What was your... Um, what was your intro to the music, and how did it how did it change your well, life? Like what Torin just said, I, I grew up in Telluride, Colorado, where they have the you know the Telluride Bluegrass Fest, and my dad actually worked in the ticketing department for I don't know twenty something years, uh, so I grew up going to the festival as a kid every year. I've been to twenty something of them, and so kind of my whole childhood, um, I had you know a mandolin. I would take lessons every now and then from Dave Lamb at the music shop there. Um, and bluegrass was just kind of this thing that existed in my life. Mm. It was like part, but it wasn't like something that I was really like attached to in any sort of way until I discovered Yonder with a bunch of my other friends in the beginning, middle of high school, I don't know, ninth or tenth grade. And uh, there was, yeah, there was obviously just something so different about that. Yeah. And like that Saturday afternoon performance at the festival every year was like, you know, it was like it was like church for me and my buddies, and I. I was lucky enough to, you know, be able to catch them, like, you know, five times a weekend during that festival and then several other times a year. I think I've probably seen Yonder Mountain String Band, like, 90 times. Wow. If I <laughs> break it down in my life. So it played a huge impact. I mean, I can remember, like, yeah, I mean, Half, Half Moon Rising was a song for me that I had specific moments of memories where it was so important to me, like, driving from Cortez back to Telluride in the middle of the night over Lizard Head Pass and like seeing the moon rise over the mountains with that song playing when oh, I was man. 17 years yeah. old is still a memory that is like like yesterday in my yeah. mind and uh, I think you know and I, I I got to college and I met Torin and and Joe and these guys and we and we went to those yonder runs in Missoula where we actually made most of our long lasting friends that are still our good friends today um, yeah it really just sealed the deal that there it was a very special special group. And, and so uh, would you would you guys say that sharing those experiences together and you know having that collective sort of fandom vibe that was the thing that inspired you to start the band? Yes. And I and I would say that plays like a huge part in the fans and the friends <laughs> that we still have today. Like I met my current girlfriend at that first yonder show that I went to. Um at the after party afterwards and she and, and she was my friend through the band for whatever 10 years and like and now we've been together for like four years so and all of our like key members of our fan group and the people that run you know like they're the admins on our band fan page or whatever are people that we met yeah. at that first yonder show and and yeah it's that's, it's so crazy that's and heavy stuff and yeah and we and i was like i would say that uh jeff has always been like one of my main influences just as far as like being a front man and like you know just kind of commanding a crowd and giving it your energy and and I'm and I'm I was a punk rock kid way before I ever got into bluegrass so like the whole you know shredding and and uh you know and he does then they do punk covers the misfits covers that come out and stuff like that I was always I was sold right away that's great off that. yeah yeah well, I know you guys need to get in to the venue here right quick to, to, to play your set, and uh, I just want to hit really quick on Miramade. These guys have a new record that has just come out, and uh, like I said earlier, I was honored to produce and work with these guys in the studio, and I think we did a great job, team. 
Yeah, I think, uh, I think the record came out great. Really proud of you guys. Yeah. What? Tell me really quick. What is? What does it represent in in the progression of the band as far as songwriting, your sound, your your approach to recording? What, what do you what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that um, while you can still definitely tell stylistically that these songs are written by the same people as our last album, there's definitely a uh, a, a growth in like just the strength and quality, whether it be subject matter playing or. Um, you know, all around the quality of the studio that it was done in. Um, it was just, it was the smoothest process in the studio we could have imagined. I mean, when we did the longest song in one take. <laughs> so if that's any, that's like, that's that's how the process went for me in my mind. That's awesome. Well, I remember thinking that, you know, our goal was really to capture what you guys do, your sound, the way you've learned to play music together the vibe of the band you know without going in and polishing it too much and the goal was really to get in the zone and capture great live performances great live takes and you guys did such a great job i thought it, i thought it was awesome so i'm, I'm i love to hear that 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 feels representative oh, of the yeah. band but what about what about for you torrent what, what were you proud of yeah, on this record i think i mean i think it's just uh, it turned out to be uh, like a really good representation of just like the band that we are now our first album was like you know, the, when you're, you know, like a young band and it's it starts out and it's kind of like a hodgepodge of all these different, like, recording techniques and, like, you know, we were just figuring out how to be in a studio. And also, it was a bunch of material that our first guitar player had written. And and so, like, it's not really representative of what this band is anymore. It's And, uh, and it's, you know, completely different style and different material and stuff. And then the next album, our last one, Ghost in the Bottle, that we recorded uh, with Andy Thorne, that was just us kind of figuring out how to be the band that we are now and you know that was like right after max joined the band and we were just figuring out how to how to do the whole psychedelic jam grass mm -hmm. sort of thing and i feel like with this one we just did a really good job of capturing just like the band that we've sort of settled into uh, the one you know the one that we're going to be you know yeah i agree i think you guys did great and i'm super proud of that record so everyone me too check out mirror made and um check out the kitchen dwellers these guys are an absolutely great band and a great group of dudes and i'm really proud to have connected with them you guys have been crushing these opening slots and uh just really really psyched to see where where you guys go with your music in the future so thanks for hanging with today guys yeah, yeah thanks a bunch for having us Great perspective right there from the Kitchen Dwellers. Thanks, guys. Make sure you give them a listen. All right, my next guest today is the incomparable John Stickley. He's a modern-day master of the acoustic guitar, and he fronts a really, really hip and unique band called the John Stickley Trio. They've got a new record coming out next spring. The first two singles are already up on Spotify, and his first record, JS3, I remember Stickley gave me a CD back in the day, and my old-school Subaru, yes, still has a CD player, and it was the only thing to spin in there for a matter of months. I'm a big fan of this guy. I love the way he approaches the acoustic guitar, and I love the sound of the band as well. When the String Dusters were in Asheville a few weeks back playing the Orange Peel. Stickley came out and jammed with us that night. But that afternoon, I got to sit down and pick his brain about everything that he's got going on and really, really enjoyed it. So here we go, John Stickley. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and we have a truly epic guest today. I've been 
Huge fan of this guy for years. He's an incredible flat picker and also a great friend. He has collaborated with the Dusters many times. He's also had a very distinguished tour of duty with the Bluegrass Generals. John Stickley, <laughs> welcome to the program, my brother. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. At your service. Yeah, this is great. Stickley and I, man, we've been we've been crossing paths forever just because of your connection to Travis, really. Yeah. And and Broke Mountain. And Stickley is, if you ask me, an integral part of sort of the modern North Carolina bluegrass scene. We're actually coming to you today from John's home in Asheville and his current project, the John Stickley Trio. How long have you guys been doing your thing as the trio? It's been a while. I think the first uh, album came out in 2010, but we were, no, uh, 2012 was the first album. But yeah, we were messing around with it probably since, you know, 2009 okay. or something like that. Maybe almost 10 years. Man, I'm such a fan. Thanks. You guys, you guys have such an incredibly unique thing going on. Such a really great proof of concept, a great uh, sort of distillation of all these really different influences, but you manage to really take the best of all these different genres, everything from metal to classical, of course, bluegrass, all the new acoustic sounds, and distill them into this really, really cool, really unique thing. If you guys haven't checked out the John Stickley Trio, you got to give it a listen. And you guys have a new record coming spring of 2020. And the first two singles, Animate Object and Don't Slip, are already on Spotify, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Available now. Cool, man. Well, well, we'll get back to that. and We'll definitely talk about sort of the inner workings of the JS3 and how you guys come up with your music and from conception phase all the way through recording. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning for you. I love to start these interviews with um, sort of an examination of the thing that really got you inspired uh first and foremost you know the the thing that got you fired up about music to where you figured out that you were going to put all your time into this thing and then ultimately um you know it, it became a career and for you that that didn't start with bluegrass no no it didn't um you know it started pretty young i, I would say in church growing up was kind of my first exposure to to uh actually like doing music you know um following a line on a page and watching the notes move along and then being in harmony with other people and hearing how those notes go up against each other. And I remember really enjoying, you know, just reading hymns out of the hymn book. Um, cause they're, they're, they're for everybody. It's easy to grasp. And, you know, none of my friends really enjoyed it that much, but I was sitting there like happy, you know? <laughs> and it's, there's a collaboration <laughs> element to it too, which is so cool. I mean, it's like making music on your own is great, but then when you start to add other voices, other instruments in, there's a synergy one plus one equals three factor. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was something that hit me really early. And, and I was always interested in kind of, kind of leaning towards the musical side of life growing up, you know, played sports young too, but it's like, there was a point there where you could either go on and do the select soccer or, uh, I actually ended up joining the North Carolina boys choir, uh, okay. writ, you know, in elementary school. Okay. And so I did that and we toured around. And so, so what was the first instrument though? You, were you a drummer first? Was that the, the first instrument you played? First instrument was, um, just probably picking up my dad's guitar, learning a couple of chords okay. on it that he showed me. So, okay. and, th and that would be really young, probably, you know, 11, 12 years old, gotcha. something like that. And then, but then 
Drums in high school, right? That was your main gig? For fun, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Played some band instruments too, sax and clarinet Got um, you. for a while, then, but just kind of did everything. And then Strunk in White. Yes. Tell us about your so that was kind of the uh, endeavors with that. So so basically, when I was growing up in my neighborhood, um, we had a group of friends, and we did two things for fun. We made movies, and we made bands. Okay. And sometimes we made movies of our ambitious bands. little crew. <laughs> I like it. We made music videos. Yeah, we were we were like doing stuff like that, as opposed to I don't know. I mean, we played Capture the Flag, too, but we got really in, like, my parents had a camcorder. We burned through so many little mini VHS tapes on that thing. And um, the band just grew out of us having fun. And the the music we were into at the time was kind of really influenced by the indie scene in Chapel Hill. So there was, like, Merge Records was blowing up, okay. like Super Chunk was getting big. There was uh, Paul Vogue, Spatula, Archers of Loaf, all still a lot of my favorite bands. And so we were, you know, in high school, but we could go to these cool shows that were happening in Chapel Hill. And then um, we started trying to kind of make music that sounded like that. And it ended up being mm, weird, hard math rock um, with a real angry kind of edge to it. Um, but you know, I was just a happy little suburban kid and I, I played drums mainly because I had a drum set. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much it. My, so my, happy suburban kids can make <laughs> angry punk music too. There's- yeah. I think about that a lot where, you know, I'm kind of drawn to, um, you know, aggressive music Okay, and I don't know where that comes from. It's like, I couldn't have had like a easier life. <laughs> what, 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 what? Describe that like one step more aggressive music, the sounds, the edge, just the, the vibration that it has is. I, I think it, the energy, you know, okay. that, that's one thing I always come back to in music. And, and I think it's a big part of the music that we do, you know, in the trio is yeah. just, it, it doesn't even have to be high energy, but it just has to be a, an intense energy, you know? And I think that that carries over through, all styles of music. It's like my favorite bluegrass is, it has a very intense edge to it, whether it's the Stanley brothers or the first David Grisman quintet album. Sure. Like that is some intense, very intentional, strong music. I hear that, man. I hear that in your playing. And I feel like not only the aesthetic of the music as a whole, but within that, like stylistically, the way that you play guitar, it's, the timing is just incredible. Thanks, and I think man. that's a big part of what makes the music so compelling. And I know um, from Maybe Believe, like there's a couple tunes, um, Almost You, Micro almost Bruise. With you, yeah. mm-hmm. um, almost With You, almost that's right. Almost With You, yeah. Yep, Micro Bruise. I, I, those tunes, and they're actually, they sort of remind me of, from the first record, JS3, Della's Walk. Yeah. It's man. like they have that modern bluegrass thing. There's this, the forward motion of the tune sort of as it's weaved into the melody, like the way the melody unfolds combined with the timing, man, it's just, yeah, to me, there's this real momentum to that music. And that, that's sort of a hallmark of I, not only your playing, but also, you know, JS three. And now with Lindsay and Hunter, you guys feel like you share that, uh, aesthetic 
you know, the, just the way that you guys approach playing your instruments, when you combine that, it just gives the music this incredible energy. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. like you, you, you've always been drawn to that kind of hard edge execution, just intense music. Yeah, definitely. And, and I remember playing drums growing up. I mean, it just got more and more that way. Um, and it, I remember the fee, I can still remember the feeling of doing it and how, how much of a release it is and how, how freeing it is to make music like that, because, you know, we're living in the world, which is very structured, at least the way I grew up was very like safe and structured and amazing. But there was something about being in the musical swirl that like, you can really just completely let go and just go for it. And like, there's no boundaries at all, you yeah. know, especially when you're young yeah. and you're in a band with your friends, like, you're just letting it flow. And then when I got into bluegrass eventually later, it was that same experience. You yeah. know, when you're in your first bluegrass band, the bass is going, the banjo is rolling, you're slamming out rhythm guitar. It's like, it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. I can relate to that. You know, I wasn't working through big challenges from early on in my life, but music was this release and where that almost, yeah, aggressive, intense energy uh, there might not be a place for that in the world that you or I come from. But then when you have that outlet, you know, I think people, really everyone need, it's good for no matter exactly. who you are. It's, it's a just, yeah, it's a cool, cool thing to feel for the first time. Yeah. And it's like yeah. addictive. And you can get a lot out. You can get a lot out. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'll through that, and that's probably a great exercise. So, yeah. so now, take me through the the transition into bluegrass because you obviously your your musical roots are pretty spread out. What what was the thing that really drew you toward acoustic music and and the bluegrass sound? So, uh, I guess that w- so I started taking guitar lessons in high school um, once a week. And uh, had a really great teacher named Michael Pope in uh, at, in Durham, North Carolina. My brother and I took from him. And uh, there was another kid who also was taking lessons from Michael. And he was on the lacrosse team with my brother Jeff at Githens Middle School. And uh, his name was Andy Thorne. Ah, yes. Andy Thorne. And he was a guitar player who wanted to be Sam Bush on the mandolin. He was learning mandolin, and he was also trying to work his way through the Bela Fleck book on banjo. He had, His dad had gotten him into going to Merle Fest, and he had shown him, you know, Newgrass. Yep. And yep. Uh, took him to see the Nashville. He had seen that the Nash, Nashville Bluegrass Band. I was so impressed, you know. So Thorne was the one who really sort of, <laughs> he, he opened that door for you and, and yeah. was kind of like, check this out. This yes. Is, and so this he's, he, him and my brother actually started playing together first. My brother was playing guitar and Andy was playing banjo. And since they knew each other, our guitar teacher hooked them up and had them, you know, playing music together duo style. And uh, it wasn't long before I was around when they were practicing one day and Andy had his mandolin because he was doing mandolin and banjo. And he was like, here, man, take this mandolin, 
you can learn the chords are easy. They're all two finger chords. Take this book and take this CD. And the CD was the uh, the original David Grisman quintet album. Yep. And that was yeah. the first bluegrass, newgrass. It was the first acoustic music that I had heard since I heard the Beverly Hillbillies at my grandma's house yeah. growing up. Legendary record. The one with the instruments on yeah. the front. Oh, oh and, and it was like that first, you know, just the intro of EMD, I was oh, hooked. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. that just, e, I could have listened to EMD over and over again, yeah. you know, for years. It's yeah. Like, and just real quick for, for a little bit of context, Andy Thorne, banjo player with Leftover Salmon. And believe it or not, I first met Thorne at the Joe Val Festival. Critter and I were there. This was when I was at Berkeley, so this is like, you know, mid-2000s. And Thorne and I were sort of similar-looking dudes. We had the same car, <laughs> and there were multiple people who actually mistook us for each other. But Thorne has since become a great friend, one of my favorite banjo players. And when I was segueing out of the Drew Emmett band to start the Dusters, I actually introduced Thorne to Drew and said, you know, this... This is your guy. He's yes, an incredible player, incredible hang, and now he's gone on to be what I consider a really integral part of Salmon. I mean, his sound is just so perfect for them, and um, and I know you guys go go way back. This is this is a great backstory. So Thorn gets you into bluegrass, and then what what was sort of the next? You know, how, how long was it before Broke Mountain actually became a thing? So. Uh, after I started learning the mandolin and playing a little bit with Andy and Jeff, our guitar teacher took us out, uh, actually forced us to go to open mics in Carborough, um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which was a whole other scene, which was hilarious. The, the open mic scene back then in Chapel Hill was really off the wall. And we learned, we were exposed to a lot of weird stuff, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we started a little band. We had a band in high school called Crawdad PA and uh, we kind of mixed that in with, you know, we in between lacrosse practice, we would go play and busk somewhere. We had a few gigs, made a little CD that we burned. And then uh, I went off to college at NC State and kind of uh, kind of separated myself for a little while. And I wanted to just kind of do the college thing. And uh, that's when I started getting to know some people in the Raleigh bluegrass scene, Russell Johnson, the Grass Cats, um, New Vintage started picking New out vintage. there. Yeah. Julie Elkins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. So I actually was in a, a an incarnation of New Vintage no briefly for a little while. Yeah, with Julie? Not, uh, no, not with Julie. Okay. We had played a couple gigs together, but she was doing something else by then. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, so that happened. And then Andy went to Chapel Hill uh, for college and he met some pickers there that were um, what was to become the Big Fat Gap Bluegrass Band. And uh, so I went over and jammed with them one night. And they had a... One of the founding members was a mandolinist, so um, I couldn't be the mandolin player in the band. And then uh, they also had a lead singer, rhythm guitarist, and so... That's when I tried to sell them on me playing rhythm uh, lead guitar. I was gotcha. like, I can be your lead guitar player. Gotcha. And so that's when I was like, okay, I need to really get better at lead guitar because I was just just starting out on you know I could play like a couple solos by Tony Rice that I had memorized. Gotcha. And uh, so then we started playing shows, and that was our college band was the Big Fat Gap, and I played lead guitar, 
And then we, we switched around and stuff. I played mandolin on some shows and bass and, you know, it was just bar band. Gotcha. And North Carolina. And, and when I think of Big big Fat Gap, I think of that as a pretty integral piece of sort of the North Carolina bluegrass scene, which I want, I want you want you to tell us a little bit more about in a second, but keep keep tracing it for you. So Big Fat Gap and and then what was what was next after yes. that? Yes. So Big Fat Gap is is become an institution. I mean they're yeah, they're getting on 20 years. Um yep. Charles Humphreys has been in the band on bass from Steep Canyon for a while. Yep. Um you know Joe Troop was a big part of it. He's got that band Che Appalache going now. Okay, cool. Um, nice. It I mean Ryan Cavanaugh was yep. in the band Rex McGee. There's just yep. we met so many it, it was like a magnet for people and it was almost like a kind of the young, energetic college vibe bluegrass band of you know of the area. Yeah, so sure. people gravitated towards it and met all sorts of cool people. And then the end of college came, and uh, Andy through some friends. You know, long story short, ended up meeting some pickers in Colorado in Durango on a ski trip. Okay, and. Those people were Anders Beck, now of Green Sky Bluegrass, Travis Book of, uh, of course, of the String Dusters. Oh, yes. And uh, a really cool mandolin picker named Robin Davis, who's still out there. Um, and Anders is a really good, Anders can kind of talk you into stuff. And I think Anders I would agree with that. talked Andy <laughs> into coming out. You know, Andy was going to, had one more year of school left, and he's like, hey, man. If you come out here, we can play festivals all summer long. And so Andy and Rick, Rick was actually Rick uh, Hawkman, our right. friend, was the first guitar player. And uh, they went out to Durango that summer and they made Broke Mountain. And I think they played like a handful of shows. Okay. <laughs> and then at the very end, they won the Rocky Grass Band Contest. Sure, I remember that. And that was the spark that started Broke Mountain down the road of being a band. Right. And so Rick couldn't come the next summer, and that's when I um, stepped in and became the guitar player it's, in it's, Broke Mountain. Yeah, it's great. You know, Broke Mountain and you guys just this past summer – had your first reunion show in quite a long time, right? At Telluride Bluegrass? Yeah, it was It was maybe the 15-year mark yeah. about. Wow. And man. we did it main stage. I man. mean, that band's <laughs> going to go down in history, seriously, with just with what you guys have all gone on to do. You know, like you said, Anders and Green Sky, Travis with the Dusters, uh, Thorn with Salmon, you're killing it with the JS3, and Robin Davis, for those of you guys who don't know, is one of the great kind of undiscovered pickers out there i mean he is a beast total just beast. like the rest of you guys um and that i know people were really hotly anticipating the reunion show <laughs> at telluride which uh, how was that for you guys hopefully we delivered how, um how was that it was it was magical man cool it was I amazing to hear that it was like uh you know eh, it was it was something i've been wanting to happen for so long that I had almost given up on it. You know, it's like, I wanted it so bad. I wanted to do it again at the five year mark. I sure. really wanted to do it again at the 10 year mark. And then after that, I was like, you know what? It, it might not happen. So I'm just not going to think about yeah. it much anymore. And then we got the call that it might be able to happen. And then finally we got the offer and uh, you know, I've been, I would looked forward to it for, for years, as soon as it was booked, it was yeah. like, uh, you know, and then we did it and 
it, the moment flew by, but there was so much happiness and anticipation and excitement and, uh, I just love those guys, and we never see each other anymore, you know? Yeah, you guys are a great group of like-minded people and players. You know, great players, really solid players, but also very musically open-minded. And it's cool, man. I I feel like the the world can look forward to Broke Mountain reunions, you know? I hope so. All along the way. I I would hope so, too. Yeah, but I'm going to stay in my space of, you know, hey it may never happen again. And yeah. I'm cool with that. It right. happened once. So we'll see, we'll but, see um, what Anders can convince you guys. to do. <laughs> you know, he's pretty convincing. I know. Yeah. I know. I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit about how you, how you practice, how you, how you think about advancing with music. And that can be your, your playing lead playing rhythm playing or your writing. And I should mention to our listeners that when I showed up here for the interview today, <laughs> Stickley had the metronome clicking away on his iPhone on the kitchen table when, when I came inside. So let that, let that be a lesson to you. Even if you have the timing of a John Stickley, who I would say is as good as, as they come when, with regard to the timing and the flow of the playing, it still matters that you get with that metronome and, and and you know yeah, just, I just want to add to add to that it wasn't just a click 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 show it was us this one that's a base so it's like there's a groove yeah it's a groove yeah, yeah. and it's like just a simple thing but it's so I do, much I, so much more fun yeah I play with a <laughs> with a Korg drum machine that you yeah. can just like punch a simple beat into so yeah but take us what's like a day to day sort of practicing regimen for you how do you how do you break up your time? What do you focus on these days to improve your music? Um, yeah, I wish it was, sometimes I wish it was better than it is. Um, but the main things that I work on are just getting around chords, um, you know, working with a metronome. I, I play with a metronome really for fun more than anything else because it will just keep you going. Whereas like, you know, you're playing by yourself, you start, you stop, you try different things. Sure. But, you can turn the metronome on and just and go. Yeah. And so a lot of the, a lot of my practice is just exploration, you yeah. know, um, figuring out different chord shapes and then, um, chord voicings, kind of, kind of figuring that stuff out by ear. Um, now do you ever zoom out and look at like the technique alone and iron things out or do you take more of a, like a, kill two birds with one stone that when you're working on new musical ideas, that's kind of the best technical practice that you can do. Pretty much, pretty much working on two ideas at once. I mean, you know, it's like I'll hone in on a chord progression and then I'll like, you know, cross pick through that chord progression the whole way on the top three strings. You know, it's like I'm doing triads up there and really just exploratory improvisation and trying to hit different techniques like yeah. you know the different cross picking patterns that are really fun for me because it's like playing banjo i imagine where you you've got a roll and something that's going and going and going and that is really that's honing in your your intention your timing your tone in your right hand building strength and then left hand can just explore different chords say you're going to go up and we're going to play all six chords you know or we're going to do sevens now mm-hmm. or we're going to do minors and just um just kind of exploring that way you know and then the other thing I, i'm working on a lot is writing new material for the trio so 
one of the ways I do that is I'll start with a beat um, or or start with a chord progression and put a beat to that and then, you know, kind of lay that down on the iPad and jam along and try to feel what could happen melodically. Uh, just kind of like all over the place, really. So so then with the, with the writing thing, because that's, that's a cool segue to sort of how you guys evolve your music in, in the John Stickley trio. So you've got a seed of an idea and you take it to the band. How uh, can that be something totally raw, totally underdeveloped, or do you bring ideas to the band a little more fleshed out? We, I bring ideas pretty fleshed out. Like, um, that was the recent track we just cut, um, for the new record that it's almost like a performance of the demo. Okay. okay. (laughs) Like I did the demo, they learned the arrangement on the demo and we played it. And because it's them playing it, not me doing my finger drums on the, um, iPad. And like, I usually do mandolin, um, a lot to, to improv, like to come up with melodies because I know Lindsay's going to be on fiddle. So mandolin kind of gets me into that space where, okay, these are the notes we're working with. Sure. Sometimes I'll transpose that onto the guitar, which ends up being something I never would have really improvised on guitar, but because I came up with it on mandolin and now play it on guitar, it's kind of got a new guitar uh, vibe to it. Um, just to get out of my guitar, you know, Oh, that's such that a great way to get into all the time. It's yeah. a great way to get new ideas flowing, sit down at a piano or any, any, yeah. take any different, you know, t- transcribe something that a horn player played and it just gets you kind of thinking in a different yeah. way. Yeah. So, so I'll get on the iPad and I just use garage band, but, um, start recording, uh, usually chords, bass lines, melodies. So you throw beats. together essentially a demo of the stuff that you're writing. Yes. And that's what you take to the band. Okay. Pre- pretty much a fully formed demo with like, Hey, the arrangement could go like this, like, you know, I'll flip flop it up and have the, you know, basically just have fun with it. Yeah, and yeah. like, all right, so this is a stupid idea, but I just wanted to do it to see what it sounded like. But we should definitely not do this like for real. And then they'll be like, well, I don't know. I kind of like that. I'm like, really? You like that? <laughs> okay, let's do it. Um, so I'll present a fully formed demo, which they take shape a lot of times in really different ways. Like, like I said, I'll start with a beat or like I'll hear a song on the radio or something that is employing some device that I think is really cool. Like a three over four. I really yeah. like three over four timing. Yeah. 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 Like that song almost with you is yeah. like, dun, 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 dun. Uh, it's like a sit, like a dun, 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 so like you have like a uh, for for the uninitiated you have an even meter going you know four four but then you play groups of three over it yeah so you have the accents coming in different but you have a syncopation basically yeah yeah it's like you almost write the song in a six eight like a big exactly. swath feel like that but then you put like a four four right double time groove over that and everything gets gets all weird and but so then, then it, there's a feel there sure know? so then you guys as a band take things through an arranging process it, you know, there's going to be a solo here there's going to be you know an improvisational section here mm-hmm. and you, but you guys work that part out of it as a band yeah yeah so so i'll i'll send them the demo first and then i'll be like all right let's get together this day and usually we can do 
so yeah, they, they get the melodies in their head and like a general idea of like how the song goes. And that's when we get together and hammer it out. And, and sometimes it'll take, you know, a six hour stretch to get it to where it feels right, you know, huh. and we'll just mess around with different, like, say, should I play rhythm guitar under this part or should I play like, you know, we do the thing with the bass or Lindsay and I can both do bass if we need to. Um, now, speaking of that, let me just interrupt you really yeah. quick because I, for those of you who haven't gone deep with the John Stickley trio, the thing that really makes you guys unique is you don't have a bass. And it's really cool. I'm curious to know, was that a thing by design from the very beginning? We're going to have a, a, a trio, guitar, fiddle, drums, no bass. Uh, or did you sort of take the side door into that approach or was that the idea all along? So the trio pretty much was done without any type of plan. It was just uh, a project that kind of came together as a group of friends. Okay. Um, as a side project for me, I was like doing other things and um, it just slowly became the main thing. And uh, we had had a, in, in the drum spot, we'd had a bass player. We had been a trio with an upright bass. Me on guitar, Lindsay on violin, and uh, Sav Sankran on upright oh, cool. bass for some early gigs. Cool. Uh, and then it was like something happened, and my, the guy who was living with me at the time, Ryan, our, our, one of our original drummers, um, he like owed me some money. So he was just like, can I just come play some gigs with the band? And I was like, sure. <laughs> And so that's when we did our first handful of bands with drum, Lindsay and I and the drummer. Um, and I just love the way it felt. I, Dude, I liked having so a cool. beat. It's so know? different. I never, I never liked drums in bluegrass, but one of our, one of our first kind of mantras was that we would never do the train beat. We were anti-train beat um, in the, in the truest sense of the train beat, we do some, some augmentations of the train beat, sure. but it was like, as long as we never do the train beat, I think we'll never have that, that we'll never do the thing that I really never liked very much. And the train beat is a, it's like the, the bluegrass. It's what you would hear. Exactly. Yeah. You hear it in a country that airs more side on the bluegrass, but the bass you know, the, the bass is such a fundamental aspect of most bands and it's the tonal center. It's the thing that, you know, juxtaposed against the bass note, all these other notes make sense in a certain way by design. You know, if you're a lead player and the bass player is playing the root and, you know, you're going off on some extensions or something sort of out there, what anchors it is the bass. But you guys, you guys manage to... Well, first of all, I love the approach with the drums because that the thing we were talking about earlier, that rhythmic edge that you guys share, that's such a big part of the sound. Like, It's just when you and Lindsay are playing melodies and you guys have a very similar time feel um, with the drums cranking along, no train beat. <laughs> um, it's such a distinct and powerful sound, but you guys manage to make really compelling music that doesn't ever lose the listeners but with no bass money you guys have some tricks that you use yeah. an octave pedal yeah so getting back to the to the bass the bassless band not intentional just purely random but we ended up with that and we liked it but the the non not having the bass did pose certain issues and so we started just trying to figure out how to work around those issues and 
one of the first things b- before we figured out how to use pedals to um, simulate bass, we were working with just what we had. And so that kind of forced us to play in a different way to compensate for the lack of that root tone. Sure. And one of the things it did was it, it rooted our, our music. Like you had to play, you couldn't go off in Slavobia. You had to stay in it because you didn't have a bass anchoring that sound. And I was having to cover the root bass note as much as possible. Right. So that, that kind of focused my whole style of playing to be a, a very rooted style, you know? Um, and it's, it's a cool experience now to play with a bass player because it's so freeing. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah. I can completely let go. That's, and that's exactly that how I, I feel when I play with a drummer. You know, I mean, we're, you're string, the drummer of the string dusters. Well, yeah, One exactly. of them. it's sort of like we all combine and we get this question a lot. We, you know, a big, part of what we do as a band is conceive of these roles for our instruments. So we're in pre-production and we're going to say, okay, there's this part I can play on the banjo and these parts, you know, what I'm doing, what Falco and Travis are doing, they sort of combine to equal a drum kit. And you're you doing know? the same thing. You're working with lack of a mandolin. Exactly. Right? So everyone exactly. is easing into that role and figuring out how to drive just That's as right. hard and you guys pull it off. Like, and it's, it's really cool. But it, it's the same thing as what you were saying. It's forced us to, play first and foremost from a really musically sound place, really fundamental that that beat needs to be covered. You know, yeah. and if no one's playing the bass note, what good does it do to go explore out tonalities when you don't have anything that's making sense of those on the bottom? And it's the same thing with the rhythm, but you guys do a great job, man. It, it never you never lose the listener. Thanks, and man. there's always a uh, you know, of course the rhythm is so solid, but um but it's it works, man. It's really cool. And I love it. It's one of our goals is to keep it as relatable as possible because yep. we we know that it's okay. It's an instrumental trio, okay. And I've seen so many instrumental instrumental trios, instrumental trios that I really like that I kind of doze off about halfway through. You know, yep, it's yep. just it just there's something there where it's like you, the human mind can only absorb so much, sure. no matter how good it is. And it loses you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, as we're working through the process of figuring things out, one, I got a a Pog bass simulator pedal. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I use one as it, well. And I sound. we had a rehearsal with it, and I was like, Lindsay, you got to get one. We have to go down this road of being able to do sure. some bass stuff because it opens up this whole like, okay, we can get heavier now. There's a bass because before there was bass in the mix, the drums we were keeping them in this lighter space, and because you don't want a heavy drum groove, you know, with like dinky rhythm guitar and fiddle. It's like mm-hmm. it needs to be together. But now we can go low end, so it opened up a whole new world, and I like playing bass. Playing bass in the band is so much fun. Yeah. And Lindsay has been really fun to watch because she's a violinist, right? She she never played other instruments. She started playing violin when she was 12, and she still plays the same violin. Wow. <laughs> so for her to have to fill all these roles that are just made necessary by the limits of the band. She's had to learn a lot of chordal backup that is kind of unique to the the way we play where she's almost like doing 
providing a rhythmic background, but also getting the chord tones down where I can play, you know, over something more than just a, a basic fiddle chop. But then now that she's got the Pog bass simulator pedal, listening to her play bass on violin is one of the coolest things ever because it's not a bassist's brain. It's like a violinist's brain, but playing on this low register, picking out notes that a bass player would never play. Yeah. At least not a, not your average bass player. So, That's so cool. And she loves it, man. It's, it's cool to watch her do it. She's had this tingy thing up yeah. by her ear yeah, her yeah, whole yeah. life, and now she's got a low-end thing. Oh, she's she thrives in the band environment that you guys are creating. Her playing is so awesome and it really fits the music blends with your style. Well, and it's cool too, because when you think about ensemble playing, you know, people don't necessarily look at it this way, but with each person that you add to an ensemble, you sort of cut down uh, some element of the live on the fly possibilities. Cause you have one more brain that needs to be in the fold, you know? So yeah. for example, when it's just a duo, it's like, man, the music can go absolutely anywhere. One guy or girl just has to follow the other, you know, when you're playing music, but when you have more people adding to the ensemble, you have to sort of keep them all in the fold. But with you guys, it's just a trio. And with three people, you know, you really retain a lot of those on the fly possibilities. You can go anywhere. And added to that, you have these unique sensibilities of what's Lindsay going to play? What baseline is Lindsay going to play on the fiddle? You know? Yeah. And so you just have, and, and that's gotta be, that turns into a rhythm. So the rhythm section's always kind of moving around. So when Lindsay's on bass, she's a rhythm section with the drummer. Now Hunter is grooving with Lindsay and that's a whole other feel from when Hunter's grooving with me on sure, bass. Sure, sure, sure. I play bass like maybe like a normal bass player yeah. a little bit more. And so th then we're locked in and it goes back and forth. So you get all these different, it's a very intimate experience. And that, and that's something we feel a lot is that, yeah, the trio can feel a little naked, but you add, you add one more person. Like when we have sit-ins, we've had sit-ins on a banjo, guitar, mandolin, bass. Each one is very different, but every time we do it, we lose something. There, there, there's all of a sudden we're just like, oh, we're just kind of like doing the backup now because there's two people over there that's, doing something. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Wow. So you guys, you guys really do an incredible job of creating a unique sound, utilizing all the tools, bringing all these different influences. Like I hear, you know, maybe believe awesome record, man. Great Thank job. You. And man, you know, awesome. there's like, have you ever heard of an artist called BBO? B I B I O. Nope. Check him out. And he has this record called silver Wilkinson that I'm a big fan of. And it's like these acoustic kind of ambient textures, um, like jewels, mm -hmm. April 14th, those two, Tunes yeah, really remind yeah. me of, you know, there's a production element. It's not all about a melody and the groove underneath it. It's like you guys are figuring out ways to use your instruments to create these beautiful, lush textures. And I appreciate that, man. I think it's Thanks. it's really cool. And then you have, you know, sort of like the Jerusalem Ridge on, on the latest record. And then similar to kind of like Blackberry Blossom, it's like metal grass. You know, <laughs> you guys just have... There's a different aesthetic. I mean, it, it it hopefully will resonate with bluegrass people, but there's this whole other edge to it, man. It's really cool. I'm curious to know what what's the the new record. Tell us, like, 
what are you guys working on now? What's the latest iteration of the sound? Yeah, what, yeah. what does all that look like? So we're just kind of uh, taking it the next step. Um, the uh, We've got Hunter in the band now. He's coming up on his two-year anniversary. Yeah, he sounds drums. great. Thanks. Yeah, he's, he's the man. Um, and he's completely added, like I said, three people. You change one person out, it's a whole new thing that we've had to kind of like grow together a lot and so now that we have now we're working in the studio there's this whole other element of like swirl to the mix so hunter's got like a very very broad palette as far as what he can work with rhythmically i mean he's he's a classically trained jazz drummer who you know i'll listen to we'll isolate the drum tracks sometimes in the studio and i'm like that's somebody who has spent hours and hours and hours pitter pattering on the snare. Right. You know? So when you say swirl, so, wh- so what do you what do you mean by that? So he's got his own flow, and it's it's a combination of you know all everything he does on the drums. It's not just a, a beat, you know, and it's not it's not jazz, but it's like a beat with a wash, yeah, sure, uh, and a, and a, just a swirling, some flow. tonal and, textures yes. that. And color he, the the beat and he comes up with beats that i could never have thought of even to, like when i'm making my demos you know i'll put something together but then he'll reprocess it in his brain and it will be like something completely new which which is new for us like to have as much rhythmic input coming from him kind of has taken everything in a new direction um and the band is just it's 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 a unit now so it's just like it's a breathing growing thing and the new album where we're working in the studio um with organic records is uh it's it's the highest quality tones we've ever had as far as you know we're, we're mainly using mics for everything that's not like a bass effect or some delay or something like that. I mean, it's, it's a mic'd tone and it is capturing the best tone of our instruments that we can get. And so it's that natural, warm, we're going warm and and natural and Hunter's drum kit, man. It's just like, it's the same way. It just sounds like his beautiful sounding drums in a room. Um, and that that's a new step for us because our other albums had a little bit of a you know we did them more in, in a rock leaning studio and they've got a a little bit of more of an electro kind of sound to sure. them but we we really wanted to take it back and go a little more acoustic on this and we're having fun with that and you had you had Dave King producing the last produce the last two records but you guys are you self producing this new one yes we're self producing okay. now and it's going great cool man yeah yeah well I I tell you what I I can't wait to hear the new record I'm I'm a huge fan man I love what you guys got going on and I think the band sounds better than it ever has and um yeah I'm really so glad we got to catch up today and and hang and chat man I, I can't wait to hear the new record and you going to come down and jam with us at the Peel tonight or what? Hell yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> you guys haven't checked them out already. The John Stickley Trio will really blow your mind in every way. These guys are as good players as anyone who's out there, and they've come together to form a band that, if you ask me, is as unique and musically evocative as anything that I've heard, man. It's just a great, great vision. Great to see you guys keep forging ahead and creating new music and um yeah look forward to jamming tonight man thank you so much for doing this today thank you chris yeah absolutely super fun that's gonna do it for episode four of inside the musician's brain thank you guys so much for tuning in 
Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Check out Osiris. There's so much more cool content there, including their latest release, After Midnight. And I want to give a real quick shout out to Backline.care. I have some great friends in the music industry who have taken the time to create a resource center for health and wellness for music industry professionals. They've poured their heart and soul into this thing. Check out Backline. Let someone know about it. It's there to help. We'll be back in two weeks with episode five, which features an interview with my great friend, Jamgrass legend Bill Nershey of the String Cheese Incident. We get into all kinds of really juicy stuff. Billy was great, super honest, talking about the dynamics of the band, the influences, how they do what they do, and how they've grown to be one of the juggernauts in the jam world. Catch you in two weeks, guys. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.